0: Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. We're about to launch our big new substack and you're going to get all kinds of amazing new Josh content. Are you excited? Are you holding onto your hats? Are you sitting down? Hat. Are you holding onto your hat? Not hats. Because although there might be many hats scattered amongst all of the listeners, you, dear listener, are an individual and you're probably not wearing more than one hat. If you're even wearing one hat, I think that's pretty good in 2022 since they don't seem to be as as common as they were back in the 1950s. Uh, but if you're wearing multiple hats on top of each other, then that's even more impressive. Welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations, the safe space for dangerous ideas. Uh, imminently, like within the next week, we're going to launch the Uncomfortable Conversations Substack. What that means is that right now, right now, right now, take your phone out and send an email to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. Uncomfy, UNCOMFY, convos, C O N. V O S at gmail.com and just say subscribe or just put question mark or just put Substack thing. What is this thing? Put me on it because if you're one of the founding members, you will get a bonus free amazing benefit in addition to all of the other amazing benefits that, uh, that people will get if they subscribe after this week. So get in now if you haven't bothered to do it because the, the doors are closing. This is one of those Raiders of the Lost Ark moments where there's a door uh, preferably a, a um, like a rock door closing and you have to roll out through it. Are you older than the age of 30? Then you understand that reference. If you don't, then go to Google and type in, go to www.google.com and type in Raiders of Lost Ark, rock door closing, Harrison Ford, roll underneath. And there'll probably be a gif of what I'm talking about. Who better than Kat Rosenfield to, uh, to be our last free – it's not the last free episode. You're going to keep getting free episodes every single week. But my point is the last episode before an additional bonanza, a deluge, a tsunami of greatness descends upon upon us all. Uh, Kat has been on the show before. She's a culture writer. She's a novelist. She's a columnist. She has a podcast. Uh, and she's a great thinker about feminism, femininity, sexuality, consent what the kids are doing with their wobbly bits these days you don't really need to know much more about this conversation except that it's a a kind of interesting and laid-back meander through an interesting woman's idea about where womanhood currently is (laughs) send us an email uncomfyconvos at gmail.com tell us you want to subscribe you will get a big benefit in the meantime enjoy the one and only cat rosenfield
1: is can we diss while we're uh, just kind of oh, making rounds Belgium here? Oh, Belgium probably being... has
0: not coming to it for some reason.
1: Belgium, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: they can't defend themselves.
1: Everything that's wrong with a country is wrong with Belgium. I'd have no <laughs> idea, actually. I've never been there. I hear that, I hear that they have uh, – actually, I hear that they, they sell um, snails on the street, like a street food, so I really shouldn't diss Belgium because that's pretty cool.
0: That sounds like the sort of thing the French would do.
1: Right, and yet apparently they don't. Maybe because the Belgians Mm. did it first and then the French were all self conscious and they were like, well, we can't do it
0: now. (laughs) If we do it, it's (laughs) going to seem like we're copying the fucking Belgians. Uh, Belgium's weird. You know, do you know, you don't know anything about Belgium? No, nor do I, but I know one thing, which is that it's not a real country. Like, I mean, sorry to Belgians. (laughs) Like, you know, because there's a chunk of it that's French, that's ethnically French and speaks French. And then there's a chunk of it that's. Uh, what Dutch and speaks Dutch? Yeah, Dutch.
1: well, you know, and then I mean, there's a
0: trunk that's like that. They just gargle on saliva in the back of their throats. Is that called Flemish, or is there? There's another one, and then and they've you know, like geopolitically, it's all, sort of like a lot of countries in Africa. People hundreds of years ago just drew it on a map and were like, "Yes, that'll do." And then right. they were like, "All right, we're we a country." Okay, yeah. We'll what I'm we'll just be- remembering
1: is that I think that um, my podcast co-host Phoebe's husband is Belgian. So,
0: <laughs> oh shit! What's I'd... Phoebe's husband's name?
1: Um, Joe.
0: If you but don't, like... if you're that uncertain, then it doesn't matter that we're dissing his country.
1: Right? He maybe doesn't even exist. This is the thing.
0: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen him? <laughs> have you ever seen him eat a snail? um uh, no well no. <laughs> yeah, lovely to have you back on the show um thanks for having
1: me
0: i was thinking i've been thinking about uh about feminism and about the state of women's rights in america and, as you do uh, about, about roe and uh i just saw a one woman show about rbg Oh, it's on here yeah there's a whole one woman show about rbg
1: Wow, I mean, she's been the subject now of um, I think at least one biopic and and now a one-woman show. How was mm-hmm. the show?
0: I mean, look, it's very celebrated here. It's by the Sydney Theatre Company, which is probably our most prestigious uh, company that Kate Blanchett used to be the the creative director of, uh, and it's very well performed, but. You know that thing that some biopics do or that some true stories do where they spend a lot of time telling you how amazing the person is instead of showing you the ways in which that person was amazing? Like there's a lot of sort of monologues of like, and at the time it was impossible for women to conceive that they would do blah-de-blah, but I said no, and so I did this and I did that. And the reality about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is probably that she was quite sort of humble outwardly, and quite internally strong and probably spent, didn't spend a whole lot of time boasting about herself. And so it feels like I'd rather just see the scenarios in which she showed her character than have someone talk, talk at me about what an, what a pioneering woman she was, if that makes sense.
1: That makes perfect sense to me. I would also prefer that.
0: (laughs) Well, as a writer, hopefully you've already cottoned onto the show. Don't tell.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's a cardinal rule.
0: Um, shall we start with uh, Juno Diaz?
1: Yeah, by all means. Let's start with Juno Diaz.
0: I was going to follow up on that and explain to people who Juno Diaz is and what's happened, but I saw you tweeting, and therefore I thought, why don't you do the explaining since you're the guest and I can just sit back and have a sip of my coffee because it's still early here.
1: Oh, gosh. I didn't do my homework. Ear- Wait, early? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let me.
0: Just, just let, let the listener enjoy my.
1: Yeah, sure, sure, Josh. That's I'll do your job for you. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, how to explain Juno Diaz? So I'm I'm gonna get my dates wrong on this because um I didn't realize you I, I didn't come prepared with flashcards about. No, that's Junot all right. Days. I
0: just have your Twitter up in front of me, and so I was I thought oh, Cats talked spoken about this as well, but you don't yeah. have to be perfect.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist talking about this. I'm probably going to be talking about it on my Odin podcast later this week. So, okay, Juno Diaz, um, Pulitzer Prize winning Dominican American novelist, uh, just an unbelievably gifted literary figure, um, important voice, important in the American canon, um, important on our current landscape, was, I'm going to say maybe in 2018, accused of sexual misconduct by three women. But this already makes it sound more straightforward and more serious than it actually is. So what happened was... pretty
0: serious. Sexual misconduct against three women, independently Mm -hmm. corroborated.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So the three incidents were as follows. The most serious one I'm going to give you first. Um, A writer named... Was it Cindy Clemens? See, this is, this is the problem with the, having me spout off about stuff that I've only been tweeting about. When you I just don't, don't say that.
0: You, you're such a novice cat. This is how you bullshit. See, when you do three hours of radio every single day, you learn how to bullshit people. You just don't say the name. If, if, you, you don't if think, you're doing if you think three
1: hours of radio every single day, I think you've made some mistakes. Like you made a wrong turn somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you can say that. So many people don't. Oh, my God, it must be amazing. Congratulations. And I'm like, yeah, but you have to do it every – well, not every day, obviously, but every weekday. Yeah. Like even if you don't want it, you still have to do it. That's the thing about jobs that I hadn't realized because I haven't traditionally had jobs, actual jobs. Mm-hmm. So you have to do it even when you don't want to do it. Did you know that?
1: Um, like I have heard that, yeah. But Yeah, you get up in the writer. morning
0: and they go, yeah, you have to still work. And you go, what if I don't want it? They go, no, that is the that is part of the deal of having a job. you got to come in and do your radio show. Well,
1: it's anyway, like a whole – uh entry in the uh i think the american literary canon about the chaos that ensues if you tell people that you would prefer not to do your job they don't really know what to do with that you could you could Bartleby mm. it you could be the australian mm. bartleby
0: well what would happen when the studio goes live at twelve thirty every afternoon and i'm not there
1: i don't know actually um this is beyond my area of expertise and beyond my regional expertise so i assume that they like they take you out, they throw you in the bay where you're eaten by sharks. Right. right.
0: Okay. And they're so, Fantastic. All right. But anyway, so, yeah, 2018, so you wanna, yeah, just Zinzi don't Clemens. just leave out that. That's my tip. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So, okay. This is how Juno Diaz was In May of 2018, Zinzi Clemens, I'm reading from uh, Ben Smith's write-up on Semaphore, by the way. A writer mm-hmm. who he'd met at Columbia University when she was a graduate student stood up at a literary festival in Sydney to make allegations she detailed later on Twitter that, Juno Diaz had cornered her after a campus event and, quote, forcibly kissed her. Okay, so the forcible kiss, um, which I remember this allegation very well, because in the course of describing this forcible kiss, uh, certain details were omitted. But the one thing that Clemens did say, she described herself as a, quote, wide-eyed 26-year-old, which really struck me. Uh, a 26-year-old mm-hmm. is an adult like not even a, you know, a barely adult. That's an adult. That's an adult woman. But nevertheless, she had this wide eyed 26 year old was very um, upset, accusing Diaz of having, you know, uh, assaulted her basically forcibly kissed her against her will. Okay. From there, there are two further allegations. One is by Carmen Maria Machado or Machado. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, she said that Diaz went on a misogynistic tirade against her when she asked him a question um, as part of an event at some literary festival. And then a third woman, whose name I don't remember, said that he had committed, quote, verbal sexual assault against her at a dinner party at a table surrounded by multiple people. But apparently the conversation got intense in a way that she interpreted as violative. Okay, so that was all in 2018. Uh, Diaz was not necessarily defenestrated, but he kind of disappeared. Um, There was an investigation by the Pulitzer board into the allegations that had been made and whether they held any water, and the Pulitzer board determined that they did not.
0: Um, In fact, an interesting thing here, Kat, that I only learned from Ben's piece is that when the Pulitzer board looked into the allegations, they didn't only find that the allegations were untrue, they couldn't even verify that there were any allegations of sexual misconduct.
1: mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, they didn't
0: even think the allegations were allegations of anything.
1: Right. And it was like, so the, the supposedly most damning evidence was basically it was like a where there's smoke, there's fire thing where, you know, as uh, is so often the case with these high profile allegations, once one has been made a bunch of other ones start kind of gathering, you know, this, this stuff has a real glow to it and people are really drawn to it. Um, You know, can I massage or, you know, reconsider or reposition something that happened to me with this person as being part and parcel of a larger pattern that will result in this incident, getting the attention it deserves. So, Uh, At that time, this woman, Monica Byrne, who is also a novelist and I think an activist, said that she had gathered something like 30 other accounts from women who had been harmed by Diaz. But she couldn't say who or what any of them were because that would be like violating privacy or whatever. The thing Mm. is, this didn't really earn any scrutiny at the time as much as it should have because people were just like, oh, my God, you know, this guy must be a monster. So... The really kind of um, upsetting thing in this piece that uh, Ben Smith wrote is you find out that, you know, this impression that that Diaz has just kind of vanished from the landscape of American literature at the height of his career is in fact true. He has not, not only not published, um, not made appearances in the past four years, but he has not written in the past four years. And I don't know if you've read uh, any of his work, but, you know, that's just an immense loss. It leaves our cultural landscape so much less rich, and um, it's just really a damn shame.
0: What is it that he had done that led the woman who initially made these allegations to, to make them?
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. So the forcible kiss.
0: Yeah, on the cheek. He kissed her on the cheek.
1: He kissed her on the cheek.
0: So they were meeting, and he kissed her on the cheek. Now he is from potentially a culture where it's normal to kiss people on the cheek as a greeting. I don't know what her background is. They met at Columbia University. I hadn't, I hadn't noted actually that she made the allegation first at a literary festival in Sydney. May I apologize on behalf of all. Sydney-siders for the fact that this took place in my yeah, fine town. <laughs> <laughs> but that was ground zero. <laughs> we are. I'm sitting in ground zero of the uh, of the catastrophe. But pres- I don't know whether she was – she's presumably not Australian if they met at Columbia.
1: I, I don't know. I mean
0: – You don't know. She could be. It could be Zinzi one of them. Zinzi
1: Clemens. Like that's how, that sounds Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know though.
0: Zinzi, Zinzi does sound like the sort of thing that Steve Irwin's daughter would be called. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Here's Zinzi Zinzi Irwin, and her snakes, her snake show. Uh, so she says, and so she made the the entire edifice of this person being excommunicated from polite society may be based around the fact that at this moment in 2018 when everyone was reckoning with how to respond to allegations of sexual harassment, we were just extremely credulous about a misunderstanding over what sort of greeting is appropriate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do, I'm even less inclined to be charitable to her on this front because I'm just thinking that... To describe being kissed on the cheek, even if you didn't want to be kissed on the cheek, as being cornered and forcibly kissed, that is a choice. And it's a choice that had really incredibly deleterious repercussions for another human being. Um, It basically destroyed his life. And I don't really understand how any decent person could make that decision to frame it that way.
0: Why do you think he... So he then... So after the Washington Post and New York Magazine and these other big publications ran with headlines about allegations of sexual misconduct against him, why do you think he dropped out of his upcoming events? Like he dropped out of a festival, he called the, the chair of the Pulitzer board to offer his resignation. Is that just what a good person thought that they had to do in that climate?
1: That, and I would guess that he was advised to do so um and this was a a time when it, as soon as an allegation was made against you, it was like depending on what kind of environment you were in, but you know if as a literary figure, you know you're you're very much immersed in like the kind of like nexus of all of this activism uh it's all taking place. Um, it was understood that like, if you were accused, you should go away. And it didn't even really matter if it was a true accusation or not because right now the most important thing was that women be heard, you know?
0: Mm. And because for too long women had been disbelieved and had been dissuaded from reporting these kinds of things and had been, I guess, suppressed by a system that protected powerful men.
1: Right. So now
0: now the tables had turned.
1: I mean, you saw a fascinating kind of brand of non-apology or non-denial that would, that would come out. Um, James Franco did one of these when he was accused of having done whatever it was he was accused of doing. Um, he made a public statement that was like, this isn't true, but I'm not going to say it's not true um, because mm. I'm that – I'm that much of a supporter of this important cause. So I'm not calling this woman a liar, even though, like, subtext, she's a liar, um, Mm. because I'm such a feminist, you know?
0: Right. Well, what else are you going to say? What would you say?
1: If it were me and I'd been accused of something I didn't do? Oh, my God. I would – and, I mean, you know, I'm saying this with the benefit of, of five years of hindsight into this movement, and, you know, having, having seen what happens, you know, when somebody's accused, I would have gone absolutely scorched earth to defend my reputation.
0: Mm. But then doesn't that make people go, well, I mean, that's just what, like, Trump does. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's a that's a tin-eared, tone-deaf kind of thing. They don't get it. Like, the abusers are always going to say that.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I I, can't wrap my head around the idea that you've been falsely accused of a felony, and you should just take one for the team. And I yeah. think, you know, we've seen what happens to people who, out of, you know, some misguided desire to be team players or whatever, who did that, um, it's not as though they were rewarded for their loyalty.
0: That's right. I mean, I guess we know that now and we didn't know that in 2018 when yeah. stuff like this happened. But it's
1: also just, I mean, you know, like if you have a strong internal sense of justice, um, then false allegations are a thing that really gets your back up. And, yeah, but um, what if they're
0: not false? I mean, what if it's true that you kissed someone on the cheek and you didn't realize that they didn't want to be kissed on the cheek? So like now all of a sudden you're second guessing yourself. It's it's almost the Al Franken thing of like it's not false he took a funny photo of him cupping the breast of a woman who was sleeping on a plane because uh, he thought that was wacky and they were close to each other but then in light of i don't know the hysteria around how men should treat women all of a sudden he goes maybe i have been treating women wrong
1: well is that really what happened I mean, the, I feel like the Al Franken thing was really pretty thoroughly debunked um, and exposed as a, you know, a sort of a political takedown or politically motivated takedown, rather, um, by Jane Mayer in the, the New hysteria, Yorker.
0: The hysteria was. I mean, it was it was ginned up by people who wanted to bring Al Franken down. Well, the woman who posted so, the photo I... to
1: begin with is is one of those people. I mean, the ball got rolling at a moment when it was evident to people who were in possession of this photo who wanted to do harm to Al Franken's reputation that they could, um, you know, put it out there, frame it in this way and cause a scandal, um, you know. And, you know, th- actually it's a good example because Franken, what he should have done was – waited for the outcome of an investigation but he was pressured Mm. by people on his own side including claire mccaskill to Mm. step down and so he did you know he did not stick around to say look you know i i deserve due process Um, i mean
0: this is the problem with being a mensch but that like you know he thinks he's doing the right thing because all of his colleagues turn on him and say you got to go and he's like well i don't want to be I don't want to be trump adjacent, I guess.
1: Right, be- but I mean, how did we get to a point where we where it's trump adjacent to defend yourself when you've been accused of something you didn't do?
0: Well, he did do that the thing. That's the thing. It's all about interpretation, isn't it? I mean, that's why these areas are so slippery. He probably looks at the photo and goes, "Yeah, it was a bad it's a bad look. Maybe that was a different time." And maybe now that's not acceptable. It's clearly not acceptable to my peers. They're all telling me to resign.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we got on this because of Juno Diaz. And I do think that he was objectively falsely accused. You know, um, this, I mean, one of the interesting things, like to just step away from the like forcibly kissed incident, which, you know, I would never describe being kissed on the cheek in greeting as forcibly kissed. And I think that it's wrong to do that. Um just as I think it's wrong to describe a, you know, a discussion, like even a heated discussion as quote, verbal sexual assault. Um, you know, these are, these are loaded terms. And there's something happening when you choose to use them in this way. But let's take a step back from both of those and just talk about the incident with um, or Machado, who, uh, there was a recording of it, there's an audio recording Is of this the woman
0: who with the Al Franken woman,
1: no,
0: this is this is Diaz. Diaz's woman. Oh, okay, that was the woman who made the allegation in Sydney.
1: Um, no, this is the one who said that he went on a misogynistic tirade against her um, at a public names. Event. This is why you just have to
0: label people with her, with their just vague description. Okay, got it.
1: Right. Um, this is so this is Diaz accuser number three who said that he mm-hmm. had, you know, um, like lambasted her in this incredibly ugly, terrifying way in public. There was an audio recording of that event and you can listen to it and you can hear objectively that what she says happened did not happen.
0: Right. Yes. And this is all now documented. It's so depressing, isn't it? So the investigators, so basically they, the The chair of the Pulitzer Prize board, Eugene Robinson, columnist at the Washington Post, asked Diaz if these three allegations were true. Diaz said no. So the Pulitzer board put together uh, an investigation. They basically hired a law firm to look into all of the allegations that were swirling around on social media. And when they came back, as I said earlier, they didn't just not verify the allegations. They didn't even see any allegations that reached the bar of sexual misconduct. So the verbal sexual assault claim took place at a dinner party, and nobody else at the dinner party recalls it having happened or not having happened in the way that the accuser claimed. The third allegation, as you say, was at a public event, and there's an audio recording of it. And the audio recording doesn't show anything there. So then the only remaining thing standing was this kiss, this uncon- non-consensual kiss, which was the actual allegation. And then that allegation turned out to be a kiss on the cheek. When they had when it had been described as a kiss initially, nobody knew that it was a kiss on the cheek, which I mm-hmm. think clearly, clearly changes things. Uh, you know, I'm no, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, Kat, but I'm no defender of rape but i would say that uh, the uh, the entree to rape is infrequently a, a kiss on the cheek in public
1: yeah i think that's basically how it always happens
0: mhm mhm mm-hmm. so then this gets talked about on twitter and now <laughs> where's the where's the tweet there was a tweet saying that ben for having the journalist ben smith for having written about this there was something saying, why are you defending sexual predators?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And this was not from a rando, this was from a colleague, a blue checkmark colleague.
1: That's right. Um, And I think that just kind of goes to show how entrenched this narrative has become to the point where the truth does not matter. Um, You know, to pursue the truth especially if the truth ends up being maybe politically inexpedient to the me too movement is seen as akin to defending rape. Yeah. Which of course it is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So where do you see the, the fallout of me too now? Like, uh, because, you know, uh, some people will hear this and go, so what, are we going to go back to an era when men can can do whatever they want to with impunity and women aren't believed when they make accusations then?
1: I mean, I don't know. I I think that the Me Too movement, even before what happened to Juno Diaz happened, I I saw it as having lost its way. And I think we've talked about this somewhat um, on your podcast before, but you know, insofar as the Me Too movement accomplished something useful, look, like Harvey Weinstein is going to die in prison. Um, There's a number of men who really legitimately did abuse positions of power in, you know, in professional circumstances to mistreat women, you know, to like leverage sexual favors from women. That's inappropriate. It shouldn't happen. Um, I mean, I thought one of the earliest... Successes of the movement was that it got us talking about the fact that women do experience and suffer from this looming shadow of sexuality in the professional sphere, and it's sort of inescapable. And it's and it's inescapable in a way that is more than just like the beautiful actress ingenue, you know, being like uh, coerced on a casting couch. It's when this is like a sort of inescapable valence of your professional life, um, it's it becomes just as frustrating and just as unfair if you're not receiving that kind of attention. You know, if you are being subject to unwanted advances at work because you're young and, you know, beautiful and attractive and desirable and and so on, like that's a me too problem. But if you are being overlooked at work, uh, if you're being you know, professionally dismissed because you're not sexually interesting to the other people in your office, that's also a me too problem. Like Mm. the solution to this is, is to, you know, do what we can to just take this element out of professional life for women so that we can engage equally in a professional sphere without, you know, having to worry that somebody's looking at our tits or that somebody's not looking at our tits and you know that either way we're being harmed um How frequently because of our do you tits? worry
0: that someone's not looking at your tits cat
1: every every day
0: <laughs> i can't even see you right now so i can't look at your tits or not look at your tits it's, it's
1: devastating to me to think that you might not want to be looking at them this is i would
0: want to look at your tits but i don't have <laughs> i don't have the means currently to do it but we could we could hit up a zoom or something and you could just flash me a bit of nip you know, if if you'd prefer, if it would make you feel more comfortable. A
1: bit um, of nip.
0: Just a little nip. Uh, just a yeah, nip, so the,
1: just to see how it feels.
0: <laughs> I just found the person who said that, so why are you writing apologia for a serial abuser of women? Shame on you. And this blue checkmark person, Dr. Sandy Parchak, is a professor and award-winning author with 90,000 followers. And then Jesse Single parachutes in, because of course he does, saying, isn't that what's in dispute, whether he has done something bad enough to warrant permanent expulsion from public life? To which another person responds to Jesse, don't you have trans genocide to plan, you absolutely useless wet wipe of a human? Oh, God. And another person says, shame on you for not being able to read. This is to, to uh, Sarah, who had criticized Ben <laughs> for defending mm-hmm. Juno. Uh, Shame on you for not being able to read this article with honest eyes. People shouldn't be cast out without proof of serious offences. That's the whole point, and you chose to miss it. To which someone else responds, Believe women. We don't need forensics to prove a guy has behaved as a creep. So is Twitter just a cesspool now?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Gosh, you know, I, I'm very fond of Jesse. He's a friend, but Um. that dude needs to get off that website. It's not yeah. good for him.
0: <laughs> I think he and Elon should take a retreat, a meditation retreat together.
1: And then nuke Twitter from space.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> Has it changed? Do you think Twitter? Are you one of these? Everyone, I've, I've, the instant Elon bought it, everyone on Twitter was saying, I can't believe how much Nazi hate there is. And I was like, I don't think he's changed anything yet. Like, I don't even think there's any... He hasn't even turned, twisted the dials of who's back on or anything.
1: Yeah, let me tell you what happened. After Elon Musk bought Twitter, um, all my toilets clogged and my pantry became infested with food moths. And, um, you know, the cat's head started spinning around. I'm sure that none of this actually happened online, but I'm sure that Elon Musk is responsible.
0: Mm -hmm. And yet... I think in, by now something has happened, and I don't know if it's just a tonal shift or if I'm just noticing it more, but it, it does seem to be completely unconstructive. I mean, incapable of having any conversation that's worth having.
1: Interesting. I think that's true, but I also had felt that way about Twitter for a while, and so I wonder if you know Elon buying the site kind of allowed people to see how bad it is um, because they had simply started to look for it, if that makes sense. It does. I don't think that Twitter – and, you know, I I should say, like, I had the benefit of um, being completely offline at, like, a dinner um, on the night when everyone was like, Twitter is dying, Twitter is dead. And it was like everyone was holding a funeral for Twitter. And I missed this completely because I was, uh, you know, drinking champagne in an evening gown like a normal person. (laughs) And um, (laughs) uh, so I, I did not witness this kind of like cataclysm. I got back on the website the next morning and... You know, things did not seem to me fundamentally particularly changed in any way, Um, and I I don't think that they've really changed as a result of the takeover. Except insofar as people are talking all the time about the takeover and what it means for Twitter, Um, Mm. but that seems to be the biggest difference that that is traceable to Elon Musk. That plus the um, the little spate of like crazy impersonations that happened as he allowed blue (laughs) checks to be purchased for eight dollars, which I think is a decision that he maybe did not like think through entirely.
0: There could be a lot of those. Are you, do you think he's going to pull it off?
1: Yeah, probably. Men went to space. Mm. I mean, <laughs> if you yeah. can do that, I think he can probably do this.
0: But people are fickle. Like, you know, physics algorithms aren't fickle. They'll do, they'll, they'll keep coming back for more. Like no matter how crazy you are, if you get the equation right, it'll be there for you. You can bank on it. People are weird. Like once people decide to stampede out of something or into something, then it can you can lose control of it.
1: That's true. Although I I did see you know this is just like a couple of one off anecdotes, but it seems like the um, social media platform to which all of the sort of worst people on Twitter fled when they realized that Twitter might be kind of escaping their control, this uh, thing called Mastodon. Uh There was like an instant meltdown over there for all of the same reasons that meltdowns occur on Twitter all the time. And I have a theory that, you know, you've got a group of people who basically take a certain dynamic with them wherever they go. And so any issue that plagued Twitter, when these people were sort of like, prolific on the platform it will also plague whatever platform they take their game over to and that's just a people problem and not a twitter problem
0: right you mean that'll be a puritanical finger wagging kind of censorious woke problem
1: well you said that not me but (laughs) if if the shoe fits
0: well you're the one who keeps getting mistaken for a conservative according to your piece in national review uh I liked that there was I saw I read this piece, and I want you to explain it to the listener. But uh I also liked the fallout to the piece, which was lots of people on Twitter saying, I can't imagine why you get mistaken for a conservative when, you know, I keep getting mistaken for a conservative, conservative woman says. Are you a conservative?
1: <laughs> I'm not a conservative. I mean this is why I was uh I was not invited to be a contributor um as a columnist at the National Review, because I'm not a conservative.
0: Why do you keep getting mistaken for a conservative
1: That's an interesting Mm -hmm. question. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just wrote 4,000 words about this exact question. Um, But the long and short of it is that I think that conservative and liberal and left and right have become sort of meaningless dichotomies and meaningless labels um, because right now, the way we do politics, um, the way we apply political labels to people has very little to do with what they stand for, what their principles are, even who they vote for, and much more to do with who they appear to be enemies with. So people look at either who you hate or, you know, absent that, who hates you, who's mad at you, and then they assume that, you know, they can reverse engineer your identity from there because you are defined by whoever is mad at you, whoever doesn't like you um for me i am a person on the left i hold views that are probably like to the left of on the on the issues that i really care about things like criminal justice and police reform i would say my issues are probably to the left of like 95% of the american public i'm very very far left on these things um but i'm also one critical of the left when it does things that I think are unprincipled, um, things like, you know, trying to boot Juno Diaz out of public life. Uh, I'm also irreverent about political stuff in general. And in combination, these two things tend to get progressives, like Twitter progressives, um, really mad at me. And they spend a lot of time yelling at me and calling me names. And I think that both other progressives and also conservatives see this happening and they say, well, all those folks are mad at her, so she must be on the other team. And it's as simple as that.
0: Mm. Irreverence is interesting to note, isn't it? That, I- that being irreverent about things would could peg you as a conservative in 2022. Because being irreverent about things, I think throughout most of my life, would have put you on the left, would have put a person on the left, and conservatives would have been dour and bossy and... Lefties would have been letting their hair down and smoking weed and doing free love.
1: Yeah, yeah. The war on fun has definitely shifted its position. And now, I mean, the the people who are sort of like clamoring about harm, you know, like... The finding kind of Satan at the root of everything, except it's not Satan, it's uh usually racism, sexism, whatever. Um, but yeah, these are folks on the left. You know, they're clutching their pearls just as hard as any of the um like Bible thumping ladies who were scandalized by my penchant for listening to Marilyn Manson as a teenager in the 90s were back then.
0: Mm. Mm. How has that happened?
1: Um I have a, a couple of theories about the tendency of people who've amassed cultural power to then engage in censorious behaviors, attempting to retain their hold on that power. Um, and, you know, I think that in general, that that also explains the hostility to free speech that's arisen on the left. I mean, I think there's two things happening, actually. One is that once power coalesces in a given place, um, you know, the people who have it will inevitably do their best to shut down oppositional speech. It's just, it happens in every sphere that you can possibly imagine. You know, you can see this like on a political level, global, national, whatever. Um, The other thing is because of Donald Trump, a lot of people, especially younger people who haven't been around politics or around culture for as long, associate irreverence or offensiveness and being willing to just go off and say whatever with the republican party and so you know all of a sudden free speech and the freedom to offend has become in their eyes a right-wing value
0: Mm. and how did you come to be writing about not being a conservative in a conservative publication
1: well, I was invited out to lunch um, by Rich Lowry, who's the executive editor of the National Review. And um, I have a policy, as I note in the piece, uh, if you invite me to lunch, I I go. You know, I love to eat lunch a lot. And um, I'm a freelance writer, so I don't really get a lot of chances to kind of um, – you know, do professional networking or or whatever. So yeah, you know, if you invite me to lunch, especially at a nice restaurant that's near where I live, like I'm there. So I accepted this lunch invitation. I did not ask why I was being invited out. I was like, whatever, sounds fun, Rich Lowry. But after I got there and uh, we'd eaten and the plates had been cleared and we'd sort of talked our way through all of the polite conversation topics that two writers can cover, I finally said, Rich, what am I doing here? And he... Very apologetically said, "Well, I was going to ask you if you were interested in writing a column for the National Review, but it turns out you're a liberal." And I laughed, and he laughed, and I said, "This is not the first time that this has happened to me because it wasn't." And he suggested at the time that maybe this would be an interesting piece. And um, what I ended up doing was uh, I wrote it on commission for them through this thing called the Pacific Fund, which. Um, is a, a means for the National Review to fund journalism that's sort of outside its usual wheelhouse, which is how they hmm. ended up with a bleeding-heart free-speech liberal writing a giant feature essay in their pages. And you know what? More power to them for for offering me that platform.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, a, a, a dedicated progressive left-wing publication uh, inviting a conservative to write... A piece at the moment, which comes back to the question about why have why have we flipped? in who's irreverent and fun and open to new ideas, and who's bossy and schoolmarmish and uh, and annoying and censorious? Yeah, um, I mean, I want to
1: say, like, you know, the thing about the National Review too is um, everyone took this piece as though it were bashing the left, and I understand why people who didn't read it might feel that way because they did append a really stupid subheadline to it that said something like "the left no longer tolerates dissent," which you know, not right. the framing I would have chosen because it's not accurate to the piece. But in the piece itself, I actually spend a, a lot of time being pretty insulting to conservatives, especially the conservatives that you know I grew up with, the folks who were sort of dominant in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, I think there's a point in the piece where I call them uh, heartless, joyless, sexless, except for the fact that they're obsessed with the sex everybody else is having uh, in the privacy of their own homes. And Mm. they were good sports about that, you know. They didn't insist on taking it out. So,
0: yeah. And you could probably make a lot of money by being like you're still young and hot, and you could be the kind of like sassy, uh, conservative chick that uh, ruffles feathers. I mean, you could be Ann Coulter 2.0. Has that ever appealed?
1: It's occurred. It does not appeal. It's occurred. Yes. Like I've, I've thought of it. Not, it's occurred like, <laughs> like a, a, like as a, a cheese curd, course,
0: not as a real. Oh, God, no, I'm I thought so you hungry. meant that it might have <laughs> in real life that uh, this had happened.
1: No, no. It's, it's occurred to me. You know, it's been a thought like I could do this. I'm aware of mm. it as a career opportunity, um, but it does not appeal to me. Why not? Well, I mean, for one thing, I'm not right wing. And so I think I would inevitably disappoint people. Um, you know when i got on there and started talking about how i'd like to abolish the sex offender registry and capital punishment and uh, enact you know sweeping prison reforms to yeah but you can, more you can do that, that
0: these days you just downplay the areas on which you disagree and you and you dial up the areas on which you agree and then you come in as if you're like oh i'm this great kind of wolf in sheep's clothing type person who can speak to both sides i mean it's the dave rubin trick right it's just like Hey, you can you can like me because I'm the inoffensive version of thing of the other side. But in actual fact, I'm just going to constantly talk about the things that I agree with you on.
1: Yeah, that for some reason um, just doesn't really appeal to me. Does it appeal to you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not at all. No, I mean, okay. I think you have to be a shameless hack for it to appeal. But, you know, there's money in it.
1: Yeah, there is. And you know, and money is a nice thing to have, but I'm gonna try to make it without um selling my soul in the process.
0: Okay. Good luck. Good Thanks. luck. Thanks. me both. We can yeah, check This is this is why in. I teach
1: yoga part time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so speaking of sexuality then, you wrote a uh, an advice column, right? Um,
1: Quite a for, while ago, I did, yeah.
0: Like a decade. Yeah. I'm
1: teenagers, yep
0: for teenagers, and uh, I saw that, that one, one of the things that came across your radar long before mine and everybody else's was demisexual. Now, I'm uh, I'm constantly bombarded, as many of us are, with new sexuality identities and new gender identities, and uh, I don't like it when we all just play the crusty old conservative and we're like, what? I ca- How can a person be called a they? They're not a plural. Like... I'm fine with people being called they if they want to, like, just, like, language changes. Nonetheless, the language should reflect something that's actually out there that's real. And gradually, we're we're accruing a number of identities that don't seem to actually be, that seem to cause more confusion than clarity. Uh, What's a demisexual and why did you write about one?
1: I didn't write about one in particular. You make it sound like I targeted one particular demisexual. Yeah. Bob, the demisexual, fuck you. Um, No. (laughs) Um, No, uh, demisexuals, as a group, um, are people who don't and cannot experience sexual attraction without forming an emotional bond beforehand. They, uh, the folks who identify as demisexuals, describe this as a sexual orientation. It's not a sexual orientation, um, at least not insofar as like we understand that term to mean anything, because, you know, for one thing, it doesn't describe who you're oriented to, and it also doesn't describe like the circumstances under which you experience desire, it basically describes a lack of desire, except under very particular circumstances.
0: Wouldn't Um, asexuals um, also be subject to that charge?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I would say asexuality, you know, if you're going to describe it as anything, you would describe it as like the lack of a sexual orientation. But demisexuality is interesting because it is sort of, um, I think for a decent number of people, it is a sort of an exit strategy strategy from asexuality because a lot of the people who start identifying as asexuals, they glom onto that label when they're like fourteen or fifteen years old and As they grow up and develop a more sophisticated kind of an intuitive understanding of sexuality and of their sexuality, particularly, they realize that maybe writing off the entire enterprise is not something they actually want to do, but they're very attached to the idea and the community and the sense of belonging and meaning that they obtained from this label. So saying I'm demisexual is basically like I'm asexual plus, you know, I'm, I'm asexual except under these very particular circumstances. So I think in in some ways it offers a sort of a gateway out of eschewing sexuality entirely into, you know, embracing it like on very narrow terms, but in a way that still allows people to feel in control, which again, like we're talking about very, very young people in most of these cases. And so that's, you know, something that they want and need and it's comforting to them.
0: Right. I mean, the, the claim has also been made uh, that a demisexual is just a woman. Basically, but I don't know if that's reductive about female sexuality. Yeah, uh, I think it is. The cliche that that men that men will get turned on by anything, and women will want some kind of connection with the individual who they're sleeping with before they get in the sack. Uh, maybe it's not a male female thing, but there is there are certainly types of people who seem to be less judicious in caring about the character of the person they're sleeping with, and others more so.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why women um, don't necessarily gravitate naturally towards casual sex. And partly maybe that has to do with being wired to seek emotional connection. But I think it has probably at least as much to do with the fact that, um, you know, women tend not to get off with somebody when they sleep with them, just like on a one off basis. It's just not like enjoyable physically in the way that it is for men for various reasons physiological reasons, but, um, I'm just trying to think like, so I've lost my train of thought a little bit. We're talking about demisexuality and whether it's specifically women. Well, so I think the thing is too, that, um, demisexuality has a place, and this I think is more true for older people who identify with the label in the sort of backlash to sex positive feminism and sort of like pornified feminism um, and hookup culture that has been dominant Mm. in the past few years, because, but what demisexuality is, what it describes is having a very traditional, very conservative approach to physical intimacy and to your sexual relationships. Right. But it dresses it up as something progressive. It dresses it up as a sexual minority identity. And I think it accomplishes two things by doing this. One, it makes having a conservative set of desires more palatable to progressives, you know, who uh, would otherwise be like, I'm not a conservative, like, that's not me. Um, The other thing is, it basically makes it so that you don't have to talk about or think about or negotiate your boundaries. Um, And at a time when you're supposed to like, you know, like the conventional culture is like that. You're supposed to be kind of maximally sexually available and up for anything and ready to go at all times. If you're a woman, you don't want any part of that Then saying, well, no, my identity precludes that from being the case allows you to kind of opt out of things in the sexual realm that are maybe undesirable to you or, you know, just unappealing. And, um, and, you know, a person can't like ask you to explain it or be critical of it because that's your identity. It's just who you are.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a bit like if you were at a party and you didn't didn't want to have to engage with people constantly offering you a drink and you just said, I'm in recovery or I'm an alcoholic or something like that, then that's just a conversation stopper. And then you don't have to have the conversation about why you're not having a third drink or whatever it might be. Yeah. Being a demisexual is like a get out of jail free card for being a prude.
1: Gosh, that, Analogy to somebody who's in recovery declining a drink is so good that I'm mad that I didn't think of it myself. Yeah, that's you exactly can take it.
0: it. Okay. You just have to credit me every single time you say it, ever. Okay. Better you can use it. <laughs> Full name and my uh, and my Twitter handle. You have to give it out every time you use it. You say that.
1: Okay. All right. But
0: apart from that, you can use it as much as you want.
1: I'm going to identify you as Josh Zepp's Twitter handle, whatever it is, and then maybe add, like, Esquire, Incel. <laughs> yeah, that'd
0: be good. <laughs> yeah. The right honorable, Josh Sepps.
1: Yeah. Right, got uh,
0: it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So, and what do you make of, if we've got this kind of modern sexual landscape in which at one end you've got the Tinderification of everything, where it's just swipe left, swipe swipe right, get it on and then at the other end you've got people having to invent new categories of progressive sexual minority just so that they can instantiate in their lives an attitude towards sexual intimacy that would have been completely widespread amongst cultural conservatives 20 years ago where what do you make of where young people nowadays well not just young people where all of us kind of fit on the on navigating the our sexual boundaries
1: That's a good question. Um, I mean, I know that Gen Z is basically not doing it. Um, They're not having sex. They're not dating. And um, Is that true? mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like the least sexually active generation ever. Um, Millennials, I think, were.
0: Well, surely our great-grandparents were. No, actually, they were probably boning each other all over the place, weren't they, when they were young? I mean. I don't know.
1: Our great grandparents, we're talking now about like pre-birth control, which always complicates things, you know, when Mm -hmm. it was not possible to have sexual intercourse without running the risk of a pregnancy, um, you know, things were a little, little different. Although I would imagine that they spent a lot of time like necking, (laughs) you know.
0: (laughs) And the necking, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like necking, quote, as you put it, that one can do without impregnating each other. Yeah. That can get pretty serious if you follow my drift, listeners.
1: I mean, you know, some of the very religious um, folks that I went to high school with um, would, you know, would do everything but vaginal intercourse, including anal, um, you know, Mm. because like.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, the sweet baby Jesus is cool with anal.
1: Yeah. Oh, Jesus loves. (laughs) Mm. I can't can't even. I'm going to I'm just going to let you yeah
0: because the sweet baby Jesus doesn't can't inseminate a uh, an egg and create a life, and that's what the sweet baby Jesus cares about
1: mm-hmm. yeah. most. and you don't I... do that right right exactly i'm I'm pretty to. sure that as he was dying that was his that was his last words right it was like that was. Every, that you know, was everything was like... including anal just
0: <laughs> yeah, just tell the children, tell the children he said as he was dying on the crucifix, do anal.
1: Are you going to get fired? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a question I ask myself every day. Okay.
1: It's, it's clear enough that the sort of movement online of like all intimacy and all courtship and dating um, has not necessarily been a boon to humanity. People seem to be lonelier and spending more time alone. Um, than they were before we decided that it wasn't okay for people to like meet and flirt in public anymore. So I, and I do see a certain amount of backlash, um, the kind of rise of like the trad movement, where people are trying to sort of, you know, recreate contemporaneously um, these very traditional relationships, you know, often they're kind of religiously inflected. But I think that that's a response in some ways to, you know, not wanting to be part of this, hookup culture. Um, so maybe what's going to happen is we're going to kind of back out of this corner where everything is supposed to happen online and you're supposed to only ever interact with or, or, you know, or meet somebody through the intermediary of a screen and treat it like it's kind of a form of shopping and get back to like basics, you know, the, um, you know, what does it mean to be in close proximity to somebody who, who smells in a way that is like exciting to you, um, you know, pheromonologically? or, you know, what is it like to be at a bar, you know, on your third beer at like midnight with somebody who you've met and there's like sparks flying and your arm brushes against theirs. And that's exciting in a way that, you know, a text just isn't, I think people are mm. probably going to rediscover this stuff. Um, out of a hunger for what's missing from the online dating sphere and hopefully kind of take us back in the direction of at least making it permissible again to meet people the old-fashioned way. But I guess we'll see.
0: I hope so. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's all the same to be like,
1: I've been married for a million years, but like my greatest fear at this point is my husband dying and, like when i'm when i'm still young enough that i'll be expected to find somebody else and that i'll have to get on the apps so basically he has to live forever it's what do you just... mean
0: you want to be no you want to make sure that he dies while you're still hot enough to get someone good you don't want to be shopping around when you're when you're old and flabby <laughs> you want to be on the market now cat you want to if he's going to he either has to outlive you or tell him to just pack it in now so that you can hit the scene while you're still cute
1: Okay, he has to outlive me then, because yeah. I, I, I can't do it.
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, however hard it would be now, it would be a lot harder in forty years.
1: I'll be eighty in forty years, so.
0: That's yeah. my point.
1: Um, I don't think I don't think at that point that I would bother with it.
0: Thirty years.
1: What thirty years? Seventy. Uh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. You might, maybe I, you might want might... a
0: little bit of. You know.
1: A little bit of action. I'm not saying
0: you'd go full Jesus. But you know you might just want a little, you want a bit you might want a bit of old school necking,
1: right? Right? Yeah.
0: Seventy. <laughs> oh, uh, you want to you want to play first date questions? This is you have the honor, Kat, of being the last guest before my Substack launches.
1: Oh, how exciting! You didn't
0: know that? No, and I,
1: I don't next know, week like
0: people. By the way, if people haven't gotten on board, then they don't even know what they get for being early subscribers yet, but you get something really, really cool for subscribing before the substack launches and being a founding member. So if you haven't done it, then you have to send an email now to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y c-o-n-v-o-s and just say subscribe or something like that and my producer will put you on the pre-list but anyway that's all a, a preface cat to saying that that means that i'm gonna so normally we're gonna do first eight questions at the end of a show where i just fire some questions at you and it's like a rorschach kind of thing uh, and only subscribers get that but because you're with us before the cutoff everyone's gonna get this unless they're listening to it after the fact
1: i feel a little used really yeah, yeah. It, you're it, just get, like you're just good. giving me away to your listeners for free.
0: Is it a good kind of used? Is it no. like a
1: No, a, a I Jesus feel like, kind of, oh. this is like this is at least as bad as being forcibly kissed on the cheek by Juno Diaz.
0: It is. The, I, I would grant you that. I would I'd definitely grant you that. It's, it's at least that bad. <laughs> I and mean, then I spend the next three years in exile.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you. I think um, you have to give me your podcast.
0: <laughs> right.
1: that's the rules, <laughs> that's
0: the rules. No, i'm just
1: kidding i don't want it um okay, okay fire away hit me with okay, your first, so first eight
0: questions first eight questions what's happening now that in 20 years people will look back on and laugh about
1: and laugh about
0: mm-hmm.
1: um Hmm. Uh, I don't know nothing about what's happening now seems funny to me.
0: Um, <laughs> that's, why it's a, that's why it's a tricky question. Because it's not like what will people get angry about? I think we all we can all see that. What will they think is ridiculous about us?
1: Um I wonder if the push for electric vehicles and like solar energy is actually gonna be the thing that people look back at and are like, what were they thinking? How really ridiculous. why um so i i've noticed that there's a lot of kind of um policies being enacted in a hurry especially in the US to try to like get people to buy electric cars or install like you know non um non-fossil fuel burning forms of like energy and the thing is that like we don't really have the infrastructure to support these things so a lot of people are, are you know trying to buy like a Tesla but they don't have any place to plug it in and there's a little bit of a cart before the horse thing happening here that I I mean it would be amazing if we like got really innovative in a big hurry and made all of the necessary stuff to to support this like transition that seems to be In the process of attempting to happen, but I think what's more likely is that it's just not—you know—we're not going to be able to innovate that fast, and uh, then we're just going to be left with like a lot of landfills full of solar panels. Be like firing them into space to get rid of them, and people are just (laughs) gonna. Right. Well, I'll
0: take you. I'll take your bet on that one. I I don't think. uh, I. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, Uh, I mean that was a really great answer. I appreciate your uh, your incredibly foolish and uh, and uh, 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 pe- really pessimistic answer in light of the climate chaos that we're about to endure, Cat. I'm sure everyone will look back on this and go, "Why weren't they buying more electric cars and putting solar panels on their roofs roofs faster?" That's what yeah, like, yeah.
1: I think they're going to be more like, "Why did they shut down all of the nuclear power plants? Well, they'll, like, they'll we really needed well. those." <laughs>
0: I'll say that too. Uh, what do you never get tired of? Oh.
1: Um, these are bad first date questions. They're too Oh, they're
0: terrible. <laughs> terrible. Okay. This, what's this your date, there is like not
1: going to be a second date.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what
1: do I never get tired of? Eating. Eating. Yeah.
0: Okay. What's your favorite first date question?
1: Um, oh man, I wish I were clever enough to come up with something really, really funny right now. But unfortunately, my brain is working slow. What is my favorite first date question? Um, how many kidneys do you have?
0: Kat, how many kidneys do you have?
1: Uh, well, no, this is my my question that I ask to people on a first date, because if they have the normal number, if they have two, then I drug mm. them and I mm-hmm. take one and then they wake up in a bathtub full of ice,
0: mm. um,
1: having had with their a, organs harvested.
0: A note written in blood on the bathroom wall saying, call 911 immediately.
1: Yeah, yeah. You've, uh, you've been on a date with me before, I guess. <laughs> I have.
0: I was that man. Uh, What's getting worse as you get older and what's getting better as you get older?
1: Um, Worse as I get older. Um, Let's see, like in the world or like on my body.
0: That's the interesting (laughs) thing about the question.
1: Um, If it's on my body, it's everything. Everything is getting worse. (laughs) Um, what's getting worse in the world as I get older? Um, I don't know, this is, this is probably a little bit dark, but like, um, the amount of digital ephemera that we're all just kind of leaving behind, it's invisible, right? But I think about this a lot, um, that... You know, it used to be when somebody dies, they leave behind like a collection of papers or photographs or whatever. And like everybody who's alive now, who's an adult now, basically, or a young adult is going to die and leave behind just like gigabytes of invisible memories that nobody will ever look at or see again. And uh, I think that's not just like... I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's a little too dark to say, ah, things are getting kind of worse as I get older. But like, you know, it's a preoccupation.
0: It's true, isn't it? It's kind of, yeah. Yeah. I sometimes wonder about that. Just the sheer, and what happens to them? Do they just degrade on a hard drive somewhere in a server farm in Iceland and eventually get rewiped over with some, some new person's Google Drive?
1: I wonder, you know, I, I think I really did a number on the guy at the Apple store when I was getting my new phone recently and I was like transferring my files over and I was like, do you ever think about like, what's going to happen to all this stuff after you die? And he kind of looked at me <laughs> and he said, well, I wasn't before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like, I'm just a 22 year old Apple store employee. Yeah. I'm making a yeah. living here.
1: Yeah. I think I ruined his day.
0: What's the worst movie you've seen, Kat?
1: The worst movie I've seen. Oh. I hate I hate to um I hate to diss things. What is the worst movie I've seen? Promising Young Woman really sucked.
0: Oh, yes. I'm so glad you said that. Tell people what Promising Young Woman is.
1: Promising Young Woman is um a movie about a 30-year-old, played by Carrie Mulligan, who spends her leisure time going out with bad men, pretending to get super-duper drunk, and then allowing herself to be taken home to their houses, the, the bad men's houses, where... If they um, attempt to sexually assault her, she does something unspecified but very bad to them. I'm not clear if she actually murders them or just like messes them up. No, she death. doesn't.
0: But I, I think you. I don't think she murders them. I think in each case she does something different to them, shames them in some way, or
1: yeah, yeah, or like she, I don't know. I feel like she doesn't. She isn't she covered in blood after one of these incidents.
0: I don't remember. She might beat them up, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um but anyway, I um this it's, it's a, so basically it's um it's a rape revenge movie. But um it's bad. It's a bad movie.
0: It is bad. I had a lot of hope for it. It's a really interesting conceit. Like I kind of liked the idea of like getting back at rapists. It it has a sort of a Dexter quality to it. Remember Dexter, the show about the serial killer who only kills killers?
1: Yeah. um, It it
0: failed in the, it just failed terribly because it was such a cartoon cutout cliche. Like every male character in the movie was a villain. There was no except for a sniveling old self-loathing professor or something whose house she goes to who ends up sobbing about how terrible men are. Like there was no nuance or subtlety about the different Types of, I don't know, sexual relationships that can exist. It was just, yeah,
1: no, was just
0: and man, it's, man equals bad.
1: I mean, it's not much fl- It's not very flattering to women either. And one of the things that kind of drove me crazy about this movie was that um, she goes on this rampage not because she was raped, but because her best friend, um, when they were in medical school was, I guess, raped, although even this is one of these these weird, and I, I understand why they wanted to do it this way, but it created a lot of ambiguity, where what's happened is the girl's gotten extremely drunk at a party and engages in acts that, you know, she later doesn't remember and would not have consented to. Um, but, you know, there is some disagreement as to whether this constitutes like a sexual assault. The- hey Winston. I'm just gonna mute myself for a second I'll be right back.
0: Okay, just make sure that there isn't an intruder in the in the house. And we'll stand by while Cat goes and takes care of Winston. Wouldn't it be great if you just heard a gunshot and then some dog whimpering and then Cat came back and she was like, oh, just I've been meaning to do that for for so long. Damn dog.
1: Okay, Damn I'm back.
0: Uh I was just saying to the the listener uh how nice it would be if we just heard a gunshot and then some dog whimpering and then you came back and was just like uh been meaning to do that.
1: Oh there was a gunshot but that was me um you know killing a man and taking his
0: kidney. <laughs> right okay okay. Um, uh, what was bothering Winston?
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um it, What he, kind
0: of breed he, is Winston?
1: Winston is a golden doodle. Uh he's a big Aww. um big brown fluffy dog and uh has a real fierce bark uh, a real protective instinct about the oh. house even when what he's protecting the house from is like rogue air molecules so yeah
0: <laughs> i would like a guy would like what a dog like that yeah
1: you can have one
0: no i can't because unfortunately my partner doesn't want to have to spend all day with a dog and he lives at i mean he works at home and i don't so uh,
1: all right well he gets that. the veto Gotcha. Bring so, the dog to work.
0: Turns out so my anyway. husband
1: had come home and that was why we were we were flipping
0: out. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, Promising Young Woman, yes, the, she's avenging something that may or may not have happened to her friend.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what I was saying before Winston flipped out, maybe trying to prevent me from talking about this, he was like, mm-hmm. no, you'll be cancelled, um, is that, you know, by just d- d- choosing to make it, make the inciting incident, one of these um, cases where there was like a, um, you know, an extreme drunkenness situation, introduces all these questions of, you know, how responsible are women for the decisions they make when they've gotten completely intoxicated, you know, is if you choose to have sex under those circumstances, you know, even if it's a decision you would not have made sober, like, are you being raped? Are you being coerced? Are Is a violation occurring? And if so, like how much of it is a violation and how much of it is just you making a decision that you are going to regret? Um, and, you know, I think that it's very difficult for a movie that's meant to have entertainment value um, to like engage with, these questions because they're so thorny and there's really no way to make them fun.
0: Um, Oh, no, it could have. It just didn't try. I mean, like a smart, I think it's possible to do clever art about this, but that film took it as a given that anything that happens to a woman who's drunk is rape.
1: Right. 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 And, and,
0: and so as long as you're on board with that, if you're preaching to the choir, then you're going to be cheering along going, you go girl, Carrie Mulligan for pretending to be drunk. And then when men take you home, they are rapists. But that's not a very, very interesting story if you have a complex view about human agency.
1: Right. And also, I mean, it's not a very flattering story to women, you know, just in terms of The idea that that you would be like top of your class at medical school and then something tragic happens to a friend of yours and it derails your life permanently. I mean, you know, I don't want to be like unkind, um, but that struck me as difficult to believe and a little pathetic.
0: Right. What you're saying is it wouldn't bother you at all if your friends got into terrible trouble.
1: I'm saying I, you know, I would do my murders and then I would go back to med school and get my degree. I wouldn't like allow it to derail my life for a period. Wouldn't of seven let it years. hang over your
0: head like that. Yeah. Um, if you have it, you have. I'm giving you a choice. You can either live full time uh, in uh, like a motorhome or on a sailboat.
1: Tell me more about the murder home.
0: <laughs> you get to pick. Either one can be. Uh, Let's say either one can be the the motor home or the sailboat of your dreams.
1: Oh, definitely the murder home. Really? Yeah. I mean, whatever. Okay. Like on a like living on a sailboat. I mean, you live on a what sailboat long made- enough, and the sailboat becomes a murder home. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but what if it's a, not a sail? Well, yeah, okay. If, I guess the sails are really what make the sailboat unappealing. What if it was a yacht?
1: All right. Maybe I don't know. Like I'm just thinking about yeah, when you said sailboats, I immediately went to, okay, like, what are the, what is it like on below decks on a sailboat? And, um, specifically what's like the bathroom situation on that sailboat. Um, it's pretty dire. Uh, I, I once spent two weeks on a sailboat with my family and, um, that was Mm, not, okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So when, yeah, if we're talking about a David Geffen super yacht with a helicopter on top, then you'd take that.
1: I, yeah, I mean the alternative is living in a house full of ghosts, or is it just a house where murders occurred?
0: No, a like motorhome, not a murder home. An RV. Oh, <laughs> did you think I was saying a murder, murder home? house?
1: Murder house, oh, yeah, like a
0: haunted house. Yeah, no, I'm not talking. But that's just my accent being silly. Yeah. That's not a haunted house. No, this is a all your home.
1: fault. You, you got to <laughs> do <laughs> so something about that, fault. man. It's confusing.
0: First we got, got Juno Diaz. Uh, Cancelled in Sydney, and now we're now we're misspeaking about uh, what do you call RVs? Is that what you call them?
1: Yeah, or a a mobile home,
0: mobile, a mobile home. Uh, Right, okay. Here we call them motorhomes, but they you could do a murder in it if you wanted to. So, if the question is between a mobile, a mobile home, a mobile home, and sailboat, yeah, sailboat, okay. Sailboat, but if you could live in a murder home, you were saying, "Oh, you'd definitely choose a haunted, yeah, murder home,
1: yeah, murder home." <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe how long this went on.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I wonder whether any listeners were clear that, that 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 misunderstanding was taking place. I'll have to listen back to it. You can send us a tweet uh, if you were, if you understood the misunderstanding.
1: I'm so embarrassed. Oh my gosh!
0: You know I should be embarrassed. I can't even pronounce. RV or whatever you call yeah, it. Yeah, you m- should be. Home.
1: Learn to speak proper English, would you? I
0: know, I know. <laughs> uh, and the last question, why don't we do the time travel question? If you could go anywhere in the future or in the past, just for a visit and then come back, where would it be?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I would like to go back in time to drink at the Algonquin Hotel uh, with Dorothy Parker and all of her cohort. And I say this knowing full well that Dorothy Parker would think I was insufferable and probably say really mean things about my hair
0: and my Mm -hmm. clothes
1: and my personality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would just, I would love every minute of it. um, Because at the end of the night, I would get back in my time machine and return to the future in which Dorothy Parker is dead
0: right and then you'd be like, <laughs> i've got the last laugh bitch
1: exactly exactly yeah
0: cat well it's lovely to, t- to catch up with you again i'm glad winston made a little appearance uh and i'm if, really uh, sorry
1: about that I, d- I know it was intensely loud
0: no but it was great though it added a little color, <laughs> a
1: little, little color.
0: <laughs> and it gave me the potential to imagine you doing horrendous things to your own dog which, uh, which entertained me for a moment. Um, and if people... Uh, you, now, you should tell people that if they want full access to all of the content, then they should subscribe to the Substack, which will initially be free.
1: Your Substack. Sure. You want me to plug your Substack for you on your sure. podcast? W- when do I sure. get to plug my own stuff?
0: Well, I mean, I guess if you want to, you can do that now.
1: Right now, yeah. Um, you know... I have a podcast of my own. It's called Feminine Chaos. We are also on Substack at femchaospod.substack.com. And my next book, You Must Remember This, uh, it's a murder mystery, a gothic murder mystery. Uh, It comes out in the U.S. on January 10th, 2023. I don't know about Australia. Maybe you guys don't get it. After what you did with Juno Diaz, you know, failing to stop his cancellation, you don't really deserve it.
0: I would imagine that you've got an international uh, release. No? Uh, I haven't haven't checked No One Will Miss Her, which was your last book for It's Australian. Uh, Let me see. Do you want me to see here? I'm going to see in real time whether it's available in uh,
1: Australian
0: stores. I'll bet it is. I'll bet it is. Uh, Yep. uh, Here it is on uh, Amazon.com.au. May arrive after Christmas. That doesn't sound promising, does it? That doesn't Mm. sound like it's coming from here.
1: No, probably not. Unless, you know, there was a run on them in Australia and they all sold out. That would be a nice thought.
0: That'd be great, wouldn't it? Let me see, How do you find out if it's actually published here? Booktopia.com.au. Uh, a smart, witty, crackling novel of psychological suspense. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's coming from abroad. Ah, uh, well. That's a bummer. Oh, well.
1: Pay those import fees.
0: <laughs> yeah exactly this is you
1: know this is how i make my living because i, I decided not to be ann coulter 2.0 um somebody's mm, got to mm. buy my books
0: yeah okay so carry on anyway so you've got a new book coming out in january in the united states of america which people can you know they can get it shipped yeah if they want to
1: yeah and um and you should i feel like and I what else to-
0: did you say everything else that you where you want people to find you
1: I don't know. I don't want to be greedy. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Kat Rosenfield. That's K A T R O S E N F I E L
0: D. Terrific. And uh, I also one... strongly
1: support everybody subscribing to Josh's podcast, <laughs> even though he can't pronounce the word motor correctly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I suppose that people who are listening to this are already subscribed to my podcast but uh, anyway they're about to get lots of additional wonderful bonus content if they uh subscribe to the Substack as well. Uh thank you cat. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. It's lovely to talk to you again. Likewise, thanks for having me. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.